Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey begins his teaching on the Ten Commandments. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Okay, I, uh, we're in Exodus. I, I am super jazzed about being in Exodus. Um, I don't know if you guys realize this. Uh, I really like the Bible. We really like the Bible here at Gatekeepers. And I just want to tell you a quick philosophy of ministry to give you an idea of why we're going through books of the Bible the way that we do. If I can get you to understand the Bible, if you can get to the place where you understand the Bible and you read the Bible and it makes sense and you get excited about it, what's going to happen is you're going to read the Bible more. And something amazing is going to take place. You're going to get discipled by the Bible. And here's the thing. We spend a lot of time thinking discipleship is primarily about a person sitting down and having coffee with another person. But I'm just going to tell you the the best tool for discipleship that you have available is your Bible. And so that's what we're doing. We're going through the book of Exodus because this is a form of discipleship um, that that is honestly far better and far more effective than just going and grabbing coffee with somebody. Although I like to go grab coffee with somebody. That's really important too. We want to here at Gatekeepers, give you depth in the word and, and, and help you have a healthy, right, systematized theology, but it's not so that you can get puffed up. And that's not, it's not so that you can have a bunch of Bible knowledge and go show all your friends your badge about how many verses you know. It's actually theology unto intimacy because having a right understanding of the word allows you to have a right relationship with the Lord. And so what we're doing is we're trying here at Gatekeepers very hard to make sure that you guys are getting fed good, solid Bible teaching, but it's not Bible teaching unto being puffed up. It is Bible teaching unto dramatic closeness, nearness, and intimacy with the Lord. Amen? All right. So I just, every now and then I like to just say that. Here we go. We're in Exodus. Go over to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to cover chapter 19, a little bit of 20. We're going to start our sermon on the Ten Commandments tonight. The Ten Commandments. Go ahead, Exodus 19. As you're flipping there, I would like to start the sermon with a statement. And it's very sincere. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I love you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of how you guys pursue the Lord. I'm so proud of watching your lives day in and day out, watching you pursue Jesus. You may not realize this, it's probably the hardest time to be a Christian in the modern era in the Western church. I am convinced the the era in which you guys live, in the culture in which you live, and the society in which you live, it is the hardest that it has ever, ever been to be a Christian. Now, it may not be the hardest in the most physical sense, right? You are not uh, going to World War I or World War II. Okay, you're not walking 10 miles to go to school in the snow, right? You, you have comforts that no other generation has had, and you, we live certainly in the richest nation or one of the richest nations in the world, but that's not what I'm talking about when I say it is the hardest generation to be a Christian. It is the hardest, I would say, mentally, emotionally, and more than anything spiritually. The culture in which you guys live consistently astounds me in all of the wrong ways. And I was talking to some leaders not too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, about this generation. And they were asking me, what, what do you think about this generation? Or, do you feel like this generation is hopeless? And I got to answer with deep sincerity and authenticity and say, no, 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 you don't understand. This generation is primed and ready to see revival in a way that nobody else has seen before. I am convinced of it. Because of the level of intensity in which you guys have to live, I believe the Lord is going to pour out his spirit on this generation profoundly. And you guys make me so proud, really. You are in the hardest season of your life as a young adult. You're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out your path. You're trying to figure out what the Lord's asking you to do while balancing it with what your parents are trying to ask you to do. You don't know who you are quite yet 
but yet you're still being formed. And though you're in the hardest season of life, you're in the hardest culture while you're in the hardest season of life. There are things that are happening in this culture that have not happened in the Western culture in this modern era in a long, long time. So often people who are maybe in my generation, a generation above can look at us and say, well, you're weak and you're all about your feelings. And, you know, in my day, you know, it was so much harder to live as a Christian. And I'm just going to tell you, they're wrong. There are five things that I want to address before we can even get into Exodus that make your generation unique. My kids, they're seven, they're five, they're two. Vivian, Oliver, and Charlie. Love my kids very much. I think I'm a pretty good dad. But I had a, uh, I had a really tough dad moment the other day. My kids wanted to go see Buzz Lightyear. And I wouldn't let them go see the Buzz Lightyear movie. I wouldn't take them to go see it. My older two in particular, Charlie, the two-year-old, obviously doesn't care. He's two. <laughs> Vivian and Oliver, they love themselves some Buzz Lightyear I wouldn't take them to go see it because there's a scene in that movie with two women kissing. Now, here's the thing. I'm not protesting uh, that there's sin in a movie. I watch movies all the time that have sin in them. It's not a sin issue. What it is, is I'm not ready to have a conversation with my seven-year-old or my five-year-old about why there's two women kissing. And I had to stand there and look at my kids and try to like kind of, you know, dance around. Why can't we go see Buzz Lightyear? Because they're seven and five and they really don't get it. You say, well, you might be overreacting. They probably wouldn't even know. And I want to tell you a story that happened to me just a few months ago. My daughter, when she was six, she just turned seven. When she was six, she wanted some McDonald's. I wanted Starbucks. So I go to Starbucks first. Then we're going to go to McDonald's right next to the, right next to the Starbucks. It's important for the story. I go to Starbucks. Person takes my order through the drive-thru. Very pleasant. We pull up. And the woman who I was talking to was clearly someone in transition and was not biologically a woman. Giant wig, colorful, big football player hands with nails, lipstick, makeup, uh, feminine style voice. You guys kind of know what I mean by that. But clearly, the birth certificate says man. Clearly, the Adam's apple was the size of my kneecap, okay? Now, I have a conversation. I don't say that. I'm making fun. I'm just letting you know. You're like, well, how do you know it was a man? Clearly, it was a man. You just can tell, right? So I'm, I am in the car, and I'm having a really actually very pleasant conversation with this person. I called, I called, uh, I, I called, I don't even, it's such a hard conversation to have. I don't even know. I don't know to say him or her. Or I, I called the person bro a few times, literally, just because that's how I talk. Right, I've called every girl in this room. If I've had a conversation with you, I probably called you bro, right? And so I like I'm super self-conscious. I'm in the drive-through. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm stuttering, but it's a pleasant conversation. And the person was very kind. I get my drink. We pull away. My seven-year-old girl at the time she was six in the back. She asked me. She goes, "Daddy, was that a boy or a girl?" I wasn't ready to have that conversation. You see, it's not that I'm trying to shelter my kids. I realize the world that they grow up in and they're going to have to face that world, but I was not ready for them to start facing that world at six years old. So I answered the question best I could, trying to be honoring and trying to be loving, but also trying to be truthful. Told you the McDonald's was right next to the Starbucks, right? So then we go to get her food at McDonald's. Same exact scenario. I go through the drive-thru person, I, I order, I get to the, the window, and now this time it's clearly a dude who is a dude. Like, he identifies as a dude. He's just like, he's just an average dude. Very clearly, facial hair. I mean, just, I mean, you know what I mean? It just looks like an average, you know, whatever. She then, as we pull away, looks at me, and she goes, well, daddy, was that a boy or a girl? And my heart broke because my six-year-old, her entire paradigm for male-female was shattered because of one trip to the Starbucks drive-thru. And what was 
clear and evident to her 10 minutes before she's now calling into question. Was that a boy or a girl? The world that you and I live in and the world that you are trying to find your way in is dramatically different than anything we've ever experienced before. Society in a very real way and the the bedrock values of society in a very real way are being eroded and the fabric of our culture is being removed slowly and you guys are standing there as young adults, kind of just like with the rags of society going, what do I do? How do I, how do I operate in this culture, but still love Jesus with all of my heart? How do I love people and how do I love Jesus at the same time when those things seem so counter to one another? And I watch y'all and dude, my heart goes out to you. And so when I say that I'm proud of you, I am proud of you because you're living in an era that most of us have not lived in before and you're trying to find your way and you're doing a really good job from what I can tell. You are trying to adhere to biblical truth and still to love. It's a weird weird world that you guys are growing up in and so a weird world that my kids are gonna grow up in. And listen, I'm not that far removed from you. I am 10 years older than most of you. I am 32. I am still young. I'm not some, you know, older generation guy who's standing before you. I'm not Moses, right? I'm your generation. And I'm telling you, in 10 years, it has changed so much that I can't keep up with it. And I can only imagine how much it's going to change in these very formative years in your life. Imagine what the world's going to look like in 10 years. Imagine what the world looks like when you have kids. I'm proud of you and I love you. And I cannot imagine how difficult it is to be a Christian in today's world. You see, I live in a bubble. I work at a church. I go to church. All my friends are at church. My kids, they go to school. Guess where the school is? Here at this church. (laughs) Literally. Oh, and you know where my wife works? At this church. (laughs) My life is in this building. It's awesome, but it's not the real world. It's easy for me to be a Christian. It's easy for me to stand strong on biblical truth, but I'm in a room full of Christians who want me to. I can't imagine being you, being 20 years old and living most of your life out in a secular world that is constantly waging war against everything you hold dear and still trying to figure out who you are. I can't imagine. The world that you live in, it's, it's crazy, man. I... I I've never heard of anything quite like it in recent past. You see, here's the five things that makes your, your generation unique, the five challenges that makes your generation unique. Marriage isn't sacred anymore. Now, here's the thing. I'm not talking about, uh, that's not a stance on homosexuality. I mean in general. Infidelity runs rampant. Abuse runs rampant. Chauvinistic husbands who are domineering and, and abusive to their wives runs rampant. Open marriages are rampant. LGBTQ unions are rampant. All of those things are more common in America today than a godly mom and dad who love each other dearly and love their kids dearly and support them and champion them and raise them in the fear of the Lord. You live in a generation where marriage is not even remotely sacred. It is predominantly a tax break. That's unique. As a matter of fact, marriage and the idea of marriage and the culture of marriage has shifted so much just in the last seven years. One of the things that makes, one of the challenges that makes living as a Christian today for you so intense is that the family unit is all but degrading. Here's the next thing. Genders aren't what they used to be. And I don't say that to to make anybody feel bad, but you have to understand for the history of all existence, it has been man and woman and male and female. And that has actually been the bedrock value of society for all of our existence. And now you're growing up in a world what seems like an overnight that was gone. 
Now, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not making a stance on it, right? We're not talking about men who maybe they have a little less testosterone and they exhibit what culture says is more feminine. Don't care about that. Not talking about women who are perhaps a little bit more tomboyish and they don't really care about makeup traditionally or traditional female things, but they'd rather fix cars and fight in the UFC. I am all for that. Right, but we're talking about people who, who are literally trying to tell us that you can be whatever you feel you are. It's not just gender, it's everything. We live in a society, that meme that was going around, where God-based morality is gone. Absolute truth is gone. And it is now all about what we feel and what pleases us the most. That is true. Marriage isn't sacred anymore. Genders aren't what they used to be. How about this? Sexual abuse is higher than ever recorded in every category possible. That's the generation that you grew up in. That's the generation that you're finding your way in. Sexual abuse is higher than ever recorded. That means man-on-man sexual abuse. That means man-on-woman sexual abuse. That means woman-on-woman sexual abuse. That means woman-on-man sexual abuse. That means adult to child sexual abuse. Every category is higher than it has ever been before. And that is the culture in which you live. And I don't know if you know anything about sexual abuse, but sexual abuse typically creates more sexual abuse down the line. That is a problem that compounds. It doesn't just go away. In the midst of a generation like that, the bearers of truth, the ones who are supposed to at least have some answers, and if they don't have the answers, they're supposed to point to the answer. Jesus, the pastors of America, 37% of them have a biblical worldview. It's the generation that you're living in. And the fifth one being with the advent of social media, we have seen such an increase in depression and anxiety where you are consistently and constantly being told to compare yourself to other people and other people's life. And every time that you're on the internet, there is a strategic attack on your brain where they are trying to trigger you over and over and over again so that you will click on their link and they will get more money. And so the entire internet has basically designed itself to fry your brain so that when you detox from social media, you feel like you just got off an acid trip. It's the same feeling. You're fried. Those are five new challenges that you have to face that your parents didn't really have to face. Yeah, there was a little bit of it sprinkled in there, but it wasn't celebrated. Say, what on God's green earth does this have to do with Exodus? It's a fair question. Absolutely nothing. I just wanted to vent. I'm just kidding. While all of these problems may be new in the West, they're actually ancient problems. And while you and I have never seen things like this before in our lifetime, and perhaps our parents or our grandparents have not, these are ancient problems in the grand scheme of history. And our culture today may look nothing like we thought it was going to look like or may look nothing like we've ever seen, but it looks exactly like the cultural climate that Moses lived in. completely and totally godless. People a slave to whatever sinful desire they want or have, making God's actual idols and gods to sex and fertility and money and fame and fortune and bowing down and worshiping those gods and and having children just so that they can sacrifice those children. And you can say, well, wait a second. That's not like our culture. Our culture's not like that. C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery, that we can, we can go and look and see what they used to do and be like, well, we're more, far more sophisticated today. But I am telling you now, how many people will sacrifice a child for comfort? Comfort. 
How many people will sacrifice their child so that they can have a better, more wealthy life for convenience? That's what this issue of abortion is about, guys. How many of us will give our life and everything that Jesus says we're supposed to hold dear just so that we can get more money and more fame? How many of us will hurt whoever we have to hurt as long as we get our chief desire? We're just like them. Our culture is no different. We offer sacrifices to our gods. We just don't call them gods. We call them addictions. We call them vices. You may not bow down and worship Molech, but you will get on Tinder. And it's the same thing. That's, I don't know if anybody here is actually on Tinder. Just a heads up. I don't, I wouldn't know because I'm not on Tinder. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying. America, the culture that we live in, it's just like the culture of Moses. And if we're going to understand the Ten Commandments, if we're going to understand the law, we have to understand the world in which the law was given. And here's, I love this story. I love the story of Mount Sinai and Moses getting the law because here's the deal. In the midst of a culture that looks just like this culture, God's answer is not to destroy the earth like he did in the days of Noah. It's not to flood the earth, but it's to flood the earth with light. He's about to call his people who have been saved and delivered out of bondage. He's bringing them to a mountain called Mount Sinai where his glory and his presence are gonna fall and he's getting ready to present to them what we call the law. And it's so important that we get that this law is so different than anything else that anyone in the society or the culture was living by. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, that flies in the face of what everybody else believed. And here's what God does. He goes, hey, listen, Israel, you're mine. You're my own possession. You're my kingdom of priests in, in Exodus 19. And he says, and listen, if you're going to be my sons and daughters, that means you've got to act like me. And, and I know you think maybe, guys, that the answer is that God would just destroy the earth because the wickedness is so crazy. But God says, no, 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 I'm not going to destroy it. I'm going to set you as a city on a hill to show a better alternative. I'm gonna set you as a lamp on a hill and, and everyone's going to look to you, Israel. And they're gonna say, oh my gosh, hope is alive. There's something better than what I'm doing. And they're gonna flock to you. And so God's gonna give the law. And what you have to understand is the law was the thing that was going to set Israel apart from everybody. And that was God's answer to a wicked generation. And I think it ministers to me so much because though we do not sit at Mount Sinai, we come to Mount Zion instead. And the play is the same. Flood the earth with light. Look like me and act like me. That's the answer to the generation in which you live. The answer is not avoiding the culture. The answer is not attacking the culture. The answer is being light, a city on a hill. And he's about to give 10 ways that Israel's gonna do that. The 10 commandments. We're coming to a portion in Exodus where we're talking about the law. And here's the thing, guys, we don't think very clearly about the law. As Christians, as, as those who were born out of the law, as Gentiles, typically we think pretty poorly about the law. I had a feeling if, 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 I, would, if I would poll everybody and go, is the law good? Most people in the Christian church would be like, no, the law's bad. We got redeemed out of the law. That was like the old guy. That was bad. But the law is really good because here's the thing, the law the law of Moses, the law of God, it's not like today's laws. 
We look at today's laws and we, we see them as something that is restrictive and something that is restraining freedom. But that's not how God's laws work. Matter of fact, David said, I delight in God's law. God's law is the thing that gives me joy and delight. We don't like the law because we feel like the law is coming from a judge. Just like our laws, but that's not what's happening. And it's really important if, you get what's, if you're gonna get what's happening on Mount Sinai, if you're gonna understand these 10 commandments, you have to understand that these are not laws given by a judge, but values given by a father. You are getting ready to understand and to see for the first time God's value system. These are not laws for citizens to obey. These are family values to be upheld by sons and daughters of redeemed people. Does that make sense? And, it, and here's the deal. If you see that these are given by a judge, it, it feels very different. But if you see that these are given by a father, it feels like love. One feels like oppression. One feels like godly love. As a matter of fact, the law, the word in Hebrew, the law, it's translated Torah or Torah, I think is actually the, pronounced, the pronunciation. That same word is used in Proverbs 1.8 when it's Solomon and he's writing to his son. He says, hear the law from your father. Hear the instructions of your father. As he's getting ready to have a heart to heart with his son. It is a father telling his son, I love you. And here's how I want you to live your life because I care about you. And I don't want you to live in suffering. I want you to live in life and life abundantly, son. And it feels very different. And so when you think about the Exodus and you think about what's happening on Mount Sinai and you think of the Ten Commandments, you cannot think about it as, as, as the judge who's saying, if you don't do this, I'm done with you. You think about it like a father who says this, I love you. And if you're gonna be in this family, then you're gonna act like you're part of this family. If you're gonna be the city on a hill, that means you're gonna to have to behave well. And we don't like that. We don't like, we don't like sermons that talk about our behavior. We don't like sermons that try to force things on us. But here's the deal. God's getting ready to talk about our behavior. Deal with it. God cares about how you live. He cares about your behavior. It is not his chief concern. His chief concern is your heart. Because if your heart's good, your behavior's gonna follow. But rest assured, he actually cares about your behavior. He cares about my behavior. And if we're gonna be Christians, we're gonna be ambassadors of Christ and we're gonna represent Christ here on the earth, then we've gotta act like Christ here on the earth. Anyone ever hear that, that, uh, that uh, quote? I think it was from Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but it's your Christians I don't like because they act nothing like your Christ. Yeah, how ironic. This is God's value system that he's getting ready to lay out. And it's so Helpful. Let me give you some background on the law. The Ten Commandments in particular, this is the beginning of the law. This is the first time that we're getting ready to get the law. But the law is not Ten Commandments. The law is actually five books of the Bible. The Torah in Hebrew or the Pentateuch in Greek, penta meaning the five books, the first five books. And the law, the books of the law are Genesis and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Those five books are what we call the law of Moses. And in those uh, five books, there's 613 laws, not 10. There's 613 commandments, not 10. But the first ones that we get are these 10. And the reason we get these 10 is because all 603 that are gonna come after it are that fine print of each of these 10. These 10 are the general overview of all 613 laws. And in these 10 commandments, you can separate it into two categories. It's helpful to think about it like this. The first four commandments, they're about how you love the Lord. The last six commandments deal with how we love one another. And so when Jesus quotes numbers and he says, yeah, the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's talking about the first four commandments. And then he says, and the second is like it, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves." He's talking about the final six. All of the law can be summed up in this. 
Love God and love people. And the rest of the Torah explains all the fine print. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going through the fine print. That's going to be tedious. We're not doing that. We're going to have about, I don't know, 15 chapters of fine print in Exodus that we're going to skip. Cool? Okay. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, I know, I get that. Open up Exodus 19. We're not probably going to get to any of the Ten Commandments today, but we're going to preface it with one verse that I think is really helpful. And then we'll start Ten Commandments next week, officially. Exodus 19, this is verses 1 through 6. God has brought them up to the mountain. It says this, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so it's now been three months since the Exodus, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus, key in on this, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. And key in on this, this is important. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, Israel just signed up for the family value system. That's important. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered to him with thunder. The Lord came down on the Mount, on the mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And here he's getting ready to give the 10 commandments. Go right into chapter 20, verses one and two. Then the Lord God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Pause there. Those are the first two commands. I don't think we're going to get past that today. Verses one and two says, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's the verse that I want to camp on right now. Because he's, that's the, the verse that precedes 10 commandments, 10 behavioral values, 10 non-negotiable rules for being a part of the family of God. And if you miss this verse, you're gonna highly distort the 10 commandments. What's the verse? Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery here. I'm gonna give you three observations about this verse. They're vital to our understanding. Number one, God is real and he is really for Israel. That's what God's saying in that verse. I am the Lord, your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. What he's calling them to do is to remember that God actually is real. Now, you may get that. You may be like, I got that. I'm good. I, I believe that God is real. But here's the thing, if we are honest with ourselves, and, and, and Israel's gonna need to be very honest with themselves, if we're honest, most of us do not know that God is real. If we are honest, most of us think that God is real, hope that God is real, and really want God to be real. But if it comes down to major trial, major crisis hitting our life, we may not actually know that God is real. And God has demonstrated himself to be real to Israel. He just 
did the 10 plagues. He just uh, did the, the, the parting of the sea. He just made manna and cloud of fire and, uh, and pillar and all, the, just all of the miracles that they saw. He's calling them to remember, hey, don't forget I am real. And if you forget that I am real, you're not gonna keep any of these commands. And lo and behold, if you know the end of the story, they actually forget that God's actually real. Why don't they make it into the land of promise? Unbelief. That's what it means. To be operating in unbelief means that you actually don't believe that God is real. And I give a quote, and I give it often because I think it's important. C.S. Lewis, he said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance, but if false, is of no importance. But the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And yet, if we are honest with ourselves, many Christians, ourselves included, can live as if Jesus is moderately important because we're not quite sure if he's real or not. We hope he is. We want him to be. And the conflict that you live in between how do I, how do I navigate being a Christian and, and, in today's, and, and, and be in today's world? How do, I, how do I pursue my dreams but still pursue Jesus and allow him to have lordship over my life? All of the, the conflict that we deal with, the inner conflict as a Christian, if we are honest, can probably be boiled down to this. Do you actually believe with every fiber of your being, do you know that you know that you know that God is real? And that's not meant to bring conviction. That's not meant to bring condemnation. That's just honestly meant to illuminate what's happening inside of you a little bit. I am convinced if we all believed, if we all knew that God was real, that all of this was true, how would that affect how we live our life? Think about that for a moment. We'd probably look like the apostles who gave everything they had and stored all of their treasure in eternity. But we don't do that. I'm not saying that's what you should do, but I'm just simply pointing out a fact that God is getting ready to give commands. And he says, listen, if you're gonna obey these commands and if you're gonna be my people, the first thing you have to realize is that I'm real and you have to remember that I'm real. You get credit for wanting God to be real. You get credit for hoping that God is real. You get credit for, for believing that God is real. You really do get credit for that. If you remember my last or a couple of sermons ago on the 10th plague, I, I made it a point to repeat D.A. Carson who said, it is not the intensity of our faith that saves. It is the object of our faith that saves. And so yes, you do get credit for hoping and believing and wanting all of this to be real and acting as if it is. But here's the thing, when shaking comes when trial hits, when crisis hits, or when God requires a deep cost from you, wanting God to be real is not gonna cut it. Hoping that he's real is not going to cut it. Our job as a Christian, our, our aim should be to get to the place where we know that we know that we know that God is real and that his word is true. You say, well, Casey, how do you do that? I really want to do that. I, I, I don't feel that way, but I want to feel that way. I don't know. I wish I could tell you the, the surefire way to know that you know that you know, because here's the deal. I've had incredible encounters with the Lord and I still at times operate in unbelief, right? I've seen crazy miracles, but I can still operate in unbelief. But I'll give you two things that I think will help you go from, I hope that God is real to I know that God is real. The first, your history in God, your testimony. And I think that's why God calls them back to remember their testimony in this verse. I am your God. I am the Lord, your God, who delivered you out of the hands of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Don't forget, I did this. And so quick, or so often we are quick to forget our testimony. And I'm not talking about our testimony of how we came to the Lord, I mean, like all the little things that happen along the way. And I, I, I wanna encourage you guys, it is, it is vital that we remember our history in the Lord because it actually builds our faith. And you can look back and you can go over the last 15 years, God has come through over 
200 times in and, and big ways and, and little ways. And that's how I know that he's real because these can't all be coincidences. I just had a really crazy, weird story with the beta fish. I'm going to tell one time, not tonight, but I'll tell it another time. But it was a weird, like, holy crap, you're real. I forgot moment. And it was like last week. And I literally had to repent of my unbelief because I was like, dang, I, I, I actually forgot for a moment that you're not just some pie in the sky fairy tale God, but you're real and you're active. God has proven himself to the nation of Israel at this point to be true. And every other God had proven itself to be false when Egypt or when, when Israel needed it most. So the three things worth noting about this verse, when it says the Lord spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that God is real. He's really for Israel. Here's the second one, vital. The commandments came after salvation, not before. Well, this is important. It's a blink and you'll miss it idea. Remember the narrative behind the nation of Israel? They get out of the land of Egypt. God saves them. He hears their cry. He takes for himself a people to be his own possession and he delivers them. And then he brings them to the mountain three months later. And he gives them commands. That's the gospel. The order in which those events happen is crucial. God gives commands after he gives salvation after he gives deliverance. In other words, here's what did not happen. God did not show up to the nation of Israel and say, okay, here's 613 laws. If you do these, Israel, for the next two years, I will rescue you out of bondage. He did not say, if you do these, it equals deliverance and salvation. He said, no, I hear your cry. I'm near to the brokenhearted. I hate this for you. I will rescue you and I will love you and I will take you out of bondage and I will bring you to myself. And it's there that he says, now that you're my son or you're my daughter, there's some family values that you need to uphold. And that flies in the face of how every other religion works, guys. What we do is we start with grace. We start with salvation. Salvation is free of charge. All it is, is it's when the love of God meets with, with the faith of those who are broken and bam, you're saved, you're set free. You're let, you come out of the metaphorical Egypt. But so many people stop there and they forget that God's leading us to Sinai with a dramatic encounter and some behavior modifications that need to happen. And they're good with, I'm saved and this is awesome, but they don't get to Mount Sinai. And listen, guys, Sinai is really important. It is salvation unto behavior. That's not the goal of your salvation, but salvation comes first. It's really important you get that. You don't, you don't save yourself by doing all of the good works. You don't do the commands and then on the end of this thing, you're saved. That's not how it works. You're saved and out of your new identity, you live a new way. And if you can understand that, then you will get that the law was never meant to save, but to set apart. The law was never meant to save. The law was meant to set apart. City on a hill to make you and I look like our father whom we love so much so that the world may look at us and go, there's a better alternative. There's something more. There's something, there's a better life. And I want what they have. And so Israel would get that by getting the 10 commandments. The third observation that we need to make about that verse First was God is real and he's really for them. The commandments come after salvation, not before. And then third, he delivered them out of slavery, not into slavery. Isn't it interesting that that verse specifically says, and don't forget, I delivered you out of slavery. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think he says that? Because to those who maybe they don't know God, the 10 commandments and the 603 to follow, kind of sound like bondage, right? 
And that's how we kind of look at it. That God is, he's gonna give us all of these restraints to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. Now think about it, you're Israel. You've just gotten set free. You finally get to do what you wanna do when you wanna do it. You finally don't have a master or an oppressor telling you what you need to do and how you need to do it and when you can do it. And finally, for three months, they have this, this, this brief moment where they're, where they're free and now they're coming to the mountain and God says, okay, don't forget, I delivered you out of that and out of the house of slavery. Don't forget that because it's getting ready to sound like I'm putting you back in it, but I'm not. I'm not putting you back into slavery. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm showing you a clear path to life. So many of us, we look at the law as if it is bad and meant to restrain us, but it's actually something good that's meant to protect us. I'm gonna give you a quote from George MacDonald I think is um, pretty fitting. He says, freedom is not the liberty to do whatever one likes but the power of doing whatever one sees ought to be done, even in the face of otherwise overwhelming impulses. There lies freedom indeed. It is not the ability to do whatever I want. It's the ability to do right. The power to do right. And God is getting ready to give his people very clear direction. This is what is right. And he's going to enable them to do it. So in a culture that has many gods, he's gonna say, one God, just me. In a culture that has many idols, he goes, yeah, no idols. In a culture that murders their children for fame, he goes, yeah, we don't murder. In a culture that lies and manipulates and bears false witness against their neighbors so that they can gain something from it in a court system, he goes, yeah, we don't do that. And it may feel like a list of rules and regulations and that, and that we're getting bound up, but what we're actually doing is we're getting bumpers on the proverbial bowling alley and it's gonna give us a strike every time. That's how you need to look at the law. I love, there's a story, um, Mark Driscoll tells it about his son and, and he talks about the law and he says, he goes, I have a three-year-old son at the time and he said, and my son really wanted to go get ice cream and I told him, hey, you can't go get ice cream, you're three. And so he puts his son out in the front yard and he loses his son for like 15 minutes. Then he runs out the front door and his son is halfway to the ice cream shop down the road on his tricycle. And he goes, in that moment, I realized I needed a fence. Now the three-year-old may think the fence is restraining. The three-year-old may think that the fence is restrictive. The three-year-old may get offended at the fence. They may cry, they may whine, they may hate the fence, but the fence is there to protect the three-year-old, right? The fence is not there to restrain, but to give life. And when we look at God's commands, the Old Testament commands, the New Testament commands, when we look at them, what we have to look at is we have to go, these are there for our protection, these are there that we may find a life. These are there to keep us from putting our life in the gutter, putting our soul in the gutter. We love the law. We love God's word. We love when God gets, gives clarity and says, don't do this. We rejoice in that as Christians. All right. I said, it's nine o'clock, when did I start? I'm gonna continue briefly. We're gonna land the plane in five minutes. I wanna talk about the first commandment and the second commandment because they're honestly pretty easy to talk about and we don't have to do a whole sermon on them. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Those are two commands. Now, if you Google and research what the difference is between the first two commands, you're gonna get um, a variation of things. Has anybody ever thought to ask what the difference is? Because when you read them, they kind of sound like the same thing. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall have no idols. Doesn't that sound like the same thing? Because an idol is a god, isn't it? Is it something you worship? Okay, so this is, what, this is what scholars and commentators basically all tell you. And I disagree with it, although I think it's a fine truth. I just don't see it in the text. They will say this. Well, the first commandment deals with who you worship and the second 
commandment deals with how you worship them. That the first commandment is you only worship God and the second commandment teaches you how not to worship God. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's what that means. You shall have no other idols. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think actually if, 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 if I had to give my own spin on what he's saying, what I think he's saying is you shall have no other gods before me. And he's talking about people. He's talking about ideas. He's talking about, he's talking about um, um, our, our potential to idolize people and systems, philosophies and theological systems. And then I think the second one is talking about idolizing man-made things. God made things, perhaps you could look at it that way, and man made things. Because when you go down and look at uh, verses, whatever, three and four, and it talks about what it means to not worship idols. It's like, you know, don't make a graven image of, of something that was created under the sea or, or something that's on land. Don't do that. So I, I like to break it down into two categories. Have no other gods equals don't worship people. Have no idols means don't worship things. Why is that important? Because we do both of those things. We worship people, don't we? Oh, man alive, do we worship people. I think this is God saying, no one and no thing is God, but the creator of all who was before all and is over all. And I wanna give you just some questions, or maybe uh, well, these aren't even questions, they're statements. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just hammer these statements because the question that does come to mind is, well, how do I know if I'm worshiping someone or how do I know if I'm worshiping something? Because that's the idea. We're only to worship God and we're only to worship God in him alone. But I'm also, here's the thing though. We love things, right? Like it's okay to love things and it's okay to enjoy things. So how do you know if you're worshiping Netflix? How do you know if you're worshiping your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Casey, how do you know that you're not worshiping your kids? Because I do love my kids dearly. And that's that weird line, right? Because what he's not saying is don't love everything. He's not saying don't love some things. He's not saying that. What he's saying is you only worship me. So here's the bullet point statements. If you need it to make you happy, it might have your worship. <laughs> we talked about that, it's so funny. If you can't have enough of it, it might have your worship. If you wouldn't walk away from it, it might have your worship. And here's what I mean by that. Real quick, um, I used to deal with uh, major addictions, drug and alcohol, and I used to tell people all the time, oh, yeah, I mean, I could quit any time. And I really believed I could quit any time. But the better question is, would I be willing to quit? And the answer was, yeah, no. So if you wouldn't walk away from it, it might have your worship. And if it is your chief desire, it definitely has your worship. If it is that which you have based your entire life on, it might have your worship. If when you don't have it, you feel unfulfilled, it might have your worship. If it is the primary thing that motivates you, it might have your worship. If you cannot function properly without it, it might have your worship. If you find a sense of safety, security, hope, and peace from it, it might have your worship. If you're willing to hurt others to get it or to oppress others to get it, it might have your worship. If you cannot stop, it might have your worship. And there's a million things that could fall into those categories. That could be your boyfriend or girlfriend, but it doesn't demand that it's your boyfriend or girlfriend. Could be pornography. That's a sin. Don't do that. Could be money. Doesn't have to be money. But here's the thing, guys. Worship, it's such an interesting concept. Worship, it's, a, it's something that we all do, but nobody uses that terminology anymore right? Like it's, it's what we use, what we call it, we call it addiction. We call it our vice. If you have an addiction or a vice, then what you do is you actually have a worship problem. Could be a person, could be a thing, could be an idea, you never know. But God and God alone is the one who is deserving of our worship. And I will talk about worshiping people just briefly. 
We tend to worship people. We celebritize people. We have shows called American Idol. I don't know if that show is even still on, but it was when I was a kid. American Idol, where we idolize people. And we, we, we just want to get near the, the gifted preacher. We just want to get near the anointed prophet. Or we just want to, we celebritize people. That's just what we do, right? I saw the dude from Walking Dead who played Carl at Six Flags. And I was like, this was like years ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's Carl. Oh my gosh, what do I do? <sighs> okay, Lord, uh, should I go up to him? And the Lord's like, you're, you're worshiping an idol. He's a man. And I'm like, oh, I know, but he's so cool. You know what I mean? Like, we just get that way. But if we're honest, the person, the, 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 the person that we are primarily motivated to worship is ourself. He is God. I'm just going to give you this. He is God. You are not. He is God. I am not. You are not God. But if you are not careful, you're going to try to spend your life as if you are God. You're going to try to waste your life as if you are God. And here's what I mean by that. You are going to try to get yourself to get the approval of man, the affection of man, the affirmation of man, or let's call it this, the worship of man. Yeah? Where you'll do everything you can just to be liked, just to be, just to be followed. You'll do everything you can to have everybody speak so well of you. You just want people's affection. You just want people's affirmation. And you don't realize that what you're actually after is people's worship. And you're setting yourself up as God to people. But here's how it plays out when we start worshiping ourselves. We start thinking that we're the Lord of our own life. And if you don't probably get anything else from this sermon tonight, here's what I want you to understand. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what the Lord says. That includes yourself. You are not the center of your world. You're not the center of your life. Your life doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around the Lord. You are not the shepherd of your life, the shepherd of your soul. You are not the Lord of your life. He is preeminent in all things. And as Christians, as sons and as daughters, what we ought to do is we ought to look to the Father and we ought to say, you get free reign over my life. Because you said, you shall have no other gods before me. And so I'm gonna get off the throne of my own heart and I'm gonna put you back on and I'm gonna say, you reign supreme. You tell me what to do. You tell me how to do it. You tell me when to do it. And it's not a very popular message, but what you'll find is that when you do that, there's major safety in it. There's such freedom in it, knowing that you are listening to the Lord and so that you know that you know that you know it's going to work out somehow for your good. Has anybody ever had a moment where they really thought that they knew what was right? Like they just knew. They were dead set. But then somebody perhaps a little older who you trusted, who you loved, came into your life and they spoke and they said, hey, I really think this is a bad idea. I know you think this is right. And I know that you're convinced with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength that she's the one. But I gotta tell you, I really don't think she's the one. And then you listened. And then you find out that she's actually like, you know, a, a crackhead Mormon or something like that, and she's just living a lie the whole time. Just, just kidding, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I've actually seen that happen. My happened to my wife, where oh, that's a real story. It happened to my wife. He was not a crackhead Mormon, but he was a drug addict, right? But he played the part well, right? Has that ever happened to somebody? And you just had to kind of put your faith in the moment and go, I really disagree with you because I really love this person. I really like this person. I really want this thing. I really want to pursue this, but I trust that you're older, I trust that you're wiser. And so I'm just gonna do what you're telling me to do, even if it feels like it's against my own will and it works out really well. The level of freedom and safety that you have because you're like, oh, I just listened and it worked out. That's what the law's like. And you and I obeying the law, right? We can get into the theological thing in the next, probably three weeks from now, whether you obey the law, how all that works now that we're post-Jesus. But when you obey the law, what you're saying is, Lord, I agree with your leadership. Lord, I trust you. I don't trust myself. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATL. We'll see you in the next episode.